this was about as bizarre and as easy as it gets. So the number for me was a number that would allow me to never have to work. I feel like we got top, top, top. I went from a sale of you know five hundred thousand dollars to in debt. One hundred ninety-two million dollars. This is Built to Sell Radio with your host John Warlow. Hey guys, this is John Warlow. This episode of Built to Sell Radio is brought to you by the Value Builder Score. If you haven't got your score yet, I'd encourage you to take 13 minutes and complete the questionnaire you'll find at valuebuilder.com. It'll give you your score on the eight key drivers of company value. You're going to learn some different things about what drives the value of your business. You'll be able to see how you performed on these eight unique factors. Go to valuebuilder.com. So my next guest is John Bedrozik, who sold Meridian Systems, a construction project management software, to Trimble which is a publicly traded company. And John did really well out of the deal. It was an eight-figure deal, a mid-eight-figure deal, which is as much as I could get out of him in terms of the price. But you know, a good exit for John, for sure. Three things I want you to listen for in this interview. First, John describes the difference between traditional venture capital and corporate VC or corporate venture capital. I think that's kind of interesting and noteworthy. Um, the second thing to listen for is the way he structured his original venture capital deal, allowing him he, he and his partner to pull about $3 million out of the company into their pockets, as well as getting another $10 million to grow the business. So interesting way they structured that. Finally, listen for John's cautionary tale about negotiating the sale of your business with a competitor. Four or five really nice nuggets there about how to defend yourself about giving away too much information in the process of negotiating the sale of your company to a competitor. Here's John Petrozik. John Petrozik, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. Thank you, John. How are you? I'm good, thanks. Listen, tell me about this company, Meridian Systems. You guys were in construction, but a, a software part of construction. Uh, tell us a little bit about the company. Sure. It was a commercial construction project management software business uh, where our product really was a platform that helped large engineering and construction companies, as well as Fortune 500 uh, owners, even government agencies, essentially manage budgets, costs, changes, uh, schedules, collaborating documents and drawings in the review process, and sort of all of the project management business data in sort of a single database that could be shared with all the different myriad of players between architect, engineer, multiple subcontractors, all kind of collaborating together in, a, in an orchestra kind of way to put together a commercial building. And so you would have uh, the architect's drawings loaded in and the project manager's quotes and you're referencing the software is checking the quote against the, the actual invoice and invoice numbers. I mean, that whole kind of kludgy mess underneath, you know, managing one of these big complex projects. Yeah, it was kind of the soup to nuts things. I mean, you know, a lot of our uh, projects were sports facilities or high rises or hospitals. And you, typically a general contractor gets awarded that kind of project, for, you know, for a couple hundred million dollars. Uh, they go through a purchasing process of having to sort of break that down into, you know, buying 40 different subcontracts for concrete, for steel, for electrical, for mechanical, uh, managing, receiving those bids and which, you know, subcontractor you're going to award to. And now you have 40 different contracts. Um, but invariably, those contracts change during the course of a project because the design drawings maybe weren't as great as they needed to be and are changed or the owner wants to change them. And so that, you know, $5 million concrete contract turns into a $4 million concrete contract because we decided to add some new stuff. 
um, you know, coordinating when materials got delivered on site or documenting those things for insurance purposes. Uh, a lot of those kinds of uh, the, the business data of actually what's happening on a construction site on a day-to-day basis Got it. is really what the tools managed to do. Okay. And so you started this thing in 93. How did you get into that? Uh, I used to work for a commercial uh, general contractor in Los Angeles called Turner Construction. They're a, a nationwide company that's got offices all across the U.S. Um, and I was in a couple of different positions for about four or five years and really got to understand at an early age what it what it's like to from a business perspective to put together these projects. And uh, I was frustrated with the lack of sort of software and technology to do the job. And I ran into a co-founder who was a civil engineer, but his passion was software development. He was sort of a self-taught uh, software developer. And we approached each other one day and said, hey, we should start a software company and, and, and build a tool for these contractors to manage these large-scale projects. And what's his name? His name is David. David, great. So yeah. did you guys go 50-50 right up the middle or did you take more of the equity or how did you kind of deal with the partnership discussion in the early days? Yeah, no, it was 50-50 from, from the get-go. Uh, you know, our, our deal was, he said, you know, I'll write the software and you go sell it and market it and we'll be 50-50. And that's how we started. And we uh, basically bootstrapped the company with, uh, you know, putting our own personal savings into the business, uh, getting into credit card debt, uh, relying on family and friends to support us on a, on a daily lifestyle perspective. And so, yeah, it was definitely the uh, bootstrap method of starting that business. What was your personal situation at the time? I mean, were you single? Did you have kids, married, all kind of stuff? Sure. I was uh, 25, 26 years old, single, living in uh, Los Angeles, enjoying a young single guy's life. Uh, living in uh, Manhattan, Hermosa Beach. Um, and yeah, I had, you know, had some personal savings and I said to myself, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to regret not trying this. And, and the, what's the worst that could happen? I'll give it a year or two. And if it doesn't work out, I'll go back and get another job. So this was 93. You, you built the business up over, I guess it was a seven or eight year period. And then, and then raised some venture capital, I think in 2001. Yeah, that's correct. We were quite fortunate in that, uh, you know, after we released our first and second version, we managed to, you know, land some customers, land some big customers, and then kind of grew the business in the early years based on cash flow and profitability. Uh, and then, you know, 1999, 2000 came around. That's when dot-com hit. The, the world of the internet became, you know, a business tool. Uh, a lot of our larger contractors wanted us to host the product for them. Uh, you know, in sort of a data center kind of model. And that those were sort of the primary reasons why we decided we needed to raise some venture funding because we knew we needed to build a new product uh, on the internet from the ground up. We also needed the capital to uh, buy servers to host our customers' data for them. Uh, and then we also saw the opportunity to grow the business beyond uh, that our first customers were typically general contractors. And then we saw the opportunity to sell to, you know, Fortune 500 companies um, like Target and AT&T and Disney. And uh, these these companies needed sort of an owner's version of a tool. Those are sort of the three primary reasons why we d- we decided to raise venture funding. Got it. And so what were what was the company doing in terms of revenue uh, at the time of the VC round? At the time of the VC round, it was probably around six, seven million in revenues. Uh, at the time, we raised the uh, money, but you know we didn't have a lot of money on the on the balance sheet, and we knew we needed money to 
you know, go off and hire more developers and, and put in the capital for those new data centers. So six million bucks in, in top line, profitable? Like, give us a sense of how profitable that would have been. Uh, we were profitable. We were probably ranging between one to five percent profit, you know, in those in those two periods of time. But candidly, as young entrepreneurs, we were uh, reinvesting a lot of those profits into the business because we saw, you know, it was kind of a cycle. We first built, spent a lot of money on building the product and then marketing and sales. But then we also built a product that was very highly configurable. So we had to build a professional services organization. So a lot of reinvestment was going on to the business to continue to um, build essentially a bigger business. And what was going on with David? I mean, did, did you guys have, were you aligned on this, on this idea that the internet was real, that you needed to build this product, you needed to raise venture capital, or, or were you at loggerheads about, you know, the direction of the business? No, some, we were. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, no, we were definitely uh, aligned. Also, what, what happened from the external marketplace perspective is we had, I want to say, probably 100 to 150 dot-com competitors that each, like the top three, had each raised $60 million apiece. So there was also that, you know, in the early dot-com years, it was sort of like, well, these guys are raising $60 million bucks. We were working on this nice $6 million company and profitable, but... We may not be around much longer, A, if we don't get to an internet platform, B, uh, we've got a lot more competitors, you know, we're going to have to sort of get more aggressive. So we, were, we absolutely realized that we needed, you know, venture funding to not only grow the business, but to sort of even protect what we had in the long run. Got it. And so describe the process of, of raising venture capital. I mean, did you go around to a diff- bunch of different funds? Did they approach you? How was that? Uh, it was a mix. We were fortunate that uh, we were, you know, a successful business. And so a lot of the bigger funds uh, have sort of junior level staff that were calling us looking for, you know, businesses that were already established that might be looking for their first round of funding. So we did we did take a fair bit of inbound calls from from venture firms. Uh, but then we also um, probably got the most uh, advice from our attorney. Uh, who was well connected with Silicon Valley firms, and he made a lot of introductions, you know, proactively to other VC firms. So yeah, I spent a fair bit of time uh, going from Sacramento driving to Silicon Valley doing pitches. And how much were you willing to give up in equity at, at that stage in the business? How much were you guys on the table? Candidly, we didn't know. <laughs> we, we just know we needed to uh, raise funding. Uh, you're testing my memory here, but I think we did get. Um, we did get an early offer to buy the business or, or an early offer from like another software company that wanted to invest in the business. So we had a general sense perhaps of at least what, you know, what, what people were thinking the company was worth. What was that offer? Uh, Do you remember? Um, I think the offer for, for was, was like 9 million bucks perhaps. So you and David just could have walked for four and a half million bucks each. We could have. Yeah. Any part of you guys entertain that idea? I mean, that's a lot of money for a 20 or 30, you know, early 30s guy. Yeah, I mean, we did, but candidly, it was more of the entrepreneur spirit of we knew that this thing could be, we knew that the total market size was much bigger. Um, And, you know, it wasn't, I don't think either one of us started the business of let's start the business because we want to sell. We wanted to start the business because we saw a market problem and we wanted to sort of go out and try and solve that market problem. So we both pretty passionate about, you know, construction software technology industry and playing our role and sort of trying to be leaders in creating a new market category for what we were doing. Those were the things that drove us more than, you know, some liquidity event. So at 9 million bucks in terms of total valuation, so you had a sense that, hey, somebody's out there 
you know, putting that kind of price on this business. What did you end up uh, raising in the way of venture capital? And how much kind of equity did you have to give up for that? Yeah, we ended up raising a uh, $13 million round uh, was our first round from a venture firm. Uh, and it was a pretty interesting round because of the $13 million, uh, this company structured the deal where uh, 10 stayed in the business and three went out as partial liquidity for the founders. So uh, it was quite an interesting, you know, again, as young entrepreneurs never having to raise funding, it was, uh, it was an interesting way for us to be able to take some money off the table, um, you know, and, and for the, at that time, probably six to seven years we had been in the business, um, but at the same time, uh, leave, you know, a substantial amount of the dollars in the business to kind of help grow it. Uh, it was kind of like the best of both worlds, which was a really good deal for us, I think. Yeah. And considering as well, you know, someone was out there willing to spend $9 million to buy a hundred percent of the business. Now you're, you're, uh, you've got a 13 million bucks uh, and you still retain a, a portion of the, of the business. How much of the equity did you retain? Uh, between the, well, it, it's, we also, at the same time, we kind of, uh, also made the philosophical decision that all employees were going to participate in an employee option pool. So in a sense, we diluted through not only the, you know, new money coming in, but creating a venture pool. So, you know, between David and I as co-founders, we still had a majority ownership in the business. Got it. And then it, at that point, well, how did life change as a funded company? I mean, if you think back now, what was the biggest difference between running a bootstrap company and wanting that, you know, that had $10 million in the bank? Um, well, it was, uh, we were definitely on a more aggressive growth path. So we, we started definitely to grow on the R&D side, especially on the uh, needing to build a new internet app. So we made a lot of investments on, uh, on the software development team, and we made a lot of investments on um, renting out servers and, and infrastructure. I think the other part was just uh, more financial discipline and rigor on how we reported our numbers and, and having, you know, outside investors through more formalized board meetings where you sort of, you know, the investors are not there to do day-to-day -day management. They're there to provide strategic guidance and, uh, and you've got to be able to report back to your investors almost like, well, this is what we're going to do this year. And this is what we're going to do this quarter. And then the quarter ends and you got to report over, you know, what did you achieve and what did you not achieve? Uh, that sort of permeates as creating more rigor with the sales and marketing and, and finance teams over being able to create those forecasts and then being able to report how you actually are doing against those, uh, perhaps more so than we operated the business pre-investors. Uh, uh, and just speaking personally, I mean, how, 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 did, how did you handle that? Um, that degree of scrutiny and oversight that you, you didn't have for the first eight years in business? Uh, personally, I think, yeah, I mean, I was sort of embracing it. I think we all were, meaning, you know, we knew that we, we didn't go out and raise the money just to, to sit on it. We went out and raised the money to grow the business to sort of the next stage. Uh, and so, you know, we had this culture in the, in the company of sort of, you know, avid self-learners. Uh, hire people smarter than you. And so we, we embrace those uh, challenges personally of like, how can I be a better, you know, founder? You know, we, we were founders, but now we were sort of growing into, you know, being managers of more people, more dollars, uh, 
uh, more financial rigor. You know, now you're no longer just the the founder with the idea who built the first version. Now you've got, you know, a team of growing from probably 20 employees to 60, 70 employees. Uh, it's turning itself into a real business and trying to scale that up. You had to embrace it. What did you use to educate yourself about the differences between, you know, running a 20 employee company versus a 60? I mean, were there events that you attended, people you read, books you read, that kind of stuff? What were you? Uh, I, was a, I, I was an avid book reader. I read every sales, marketing, finance, accounting book. Uh, you, got, <laughs> you have to understand my, my background was I got a degree in mechanical engineering uh, never had a business course in my life, and then went straight to go work for this company called Turner and, and learn the construction side of things, but never really understand understood real sales, real marketing, real accounting, real legal as it relates to you know all the different types of contracts that we were signing. So I was such an avid reader of, of anything that I needed to know that I didn't know. And I just, I was reading like literally a book a week, sometimes even two for probably what seems like three or four years. Any one in particular that you can look back on now that was meaningful that pops to mind? Uh, the one that I oftentimes recite is Crossing the Chasm by Jeffrey Moore. Uh, it sort of talks about how uh, companies, innovative companies come out with new products. And uh, when you come out with those new products, you're sort of trying to find those early adopter customers who were willing to take some risk and sort of signing up with a new young company because they see some advantage of, of getting on board with a new tech platform early. Um, and that's great. But then really, how do you, how do you get to the masses? Uh, how do you sort of market to that, um, the bulk of the people under the bell curve? Uh, you know, it's just different marketing and sales strategies that you needed to sort of accomplish that. That was one that I oftentimes, I still refer to it today, actually. So after the initial round of venture capital, you actually went for something called corporate venture capital, a second round. What, what was that all about? Yeah. So uh, one, of our, uh, one of our big customers, which was the company that I worked for, Turner Construction, uh, they had actually been bought by a larger uh, global construction conglomerate called Hochtief, uh, based in Germany. And as a result of that acquisition, we were getting exposed to potentially, you know, taking our products to international markets in Europe and in Asia. And, um, you know, they were looking at a corporate wide, you know, standard, not just in the U.S., but, you know, in, in their various divisions around the world. And it just so happened that they were interested in us, you know, translating it into German and all these other kinds of aspects. And we sort of turned that into, that would be a great opportunity. We're just not funded for that, you know, in terms of really trying to take this thing on a global scale. Uh, you know, we'd probably need some additional rounds of funding. And it turned out that they were interested in being a, a corporate venture funding uh, uh, party to that. <clears throat> so they decided to put some money into the business to really help scale this thing uh, on a global basis. So how does that work with an existing venture capitalist at the table? Um, in terms of making sure they don't get diluted or getting their approval? I mean, talk us through that. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there was a, clearly an approval process once you, you know, you have uh, existing inve invest investors. Um, those investor documents and rights oftentimes give them the ability to kind of, uh, depends on how it's negotiated, either veto or approve or, or have to vote, sign off on additional funding. Um, and we, yeah, we were very upfront with our venture investors and they understood this, that was going to be a good thing because not only was it, you know, additional investment dollars to help grow the business globally, but this was also coming from a customer that's going to be spending more customer dollars with us as well. 
uh, and helping grow the revenues, right? So the the previous investor was, uh, you know, understood very early in this process what the pros and cons of this t- kind of deal was, and they were definitely for it. So uh, it was pretty much a unanimous decision at the at the board uh, at that time to take on this uh, strategic investor. And the valuation that the corporate VC bought in at, how would it compare to that of the, the venture round? You know, I, I candidly don't remember that. I do remember it was it was more than what the venture firm paid for, which was obviously a good thing. You know, when you whenever you raise additional funds, uh, as long as your valuation is going north, usually existing investors are happy. Uh, if your valuation ends up being flat or south, then that that, that can trigger all kinds of other terms and conditions because that's not necessarily good for previous investors. So I know that it was definitely, I want to say it was maybe we probably raised the value one or two X. Uh, Now it was only a year later. So maybe it was only 50% X because I don't think we had fully executed on all the stuff we had done at that point in time. Uh, But yeah, it was, uh, it was a good, uh, it was a good round. We, and they ended up investing, I think 5 million into the business. And that was back in 2012. Ultimately, you you ultimately sold the company in 2006. Maybe walk us through what led up to the transaction. Uh, what was were there was there a triggering event or, or some sort of event that? Sure. Yeah. Uh, it, well, the triggering event I think from the entrepreneur standpoint was the day that we decided to take venture funding is the day that you decide you're going to provide some return to those investors. Uh, you know, so you know, circle back to 2001, the day that David and I said, you know, let's take on some money. Those venture firms aren't investing in lifestyle businesses. (laughs) They're not looking to just sort of put their money in and let you run the thing for the next 15 to 20 years of your life. Uh, They're looking for a return on that investment. Uh, And then so, you know, so oftentimes the return is either if you're, you know, really knocking the cover off the ball, you maybe go public. Uh, but more often than not, more uh, liquidity for venture firms ends up being ends up being through acquisition. Um, so we were, you know, kind of in that time frame. I think we were probably six years into the investment period with the first investor, um, and we were always kind of out on the lookout for who could be a potential acquirers of this business. Um, so it was a combination of us putting ourselves in position to, you know, uh, have strategic partnerships with potential acquirers. Uh, you know, at this point in time, we had even hired a banker to kind of help uh, market the business. Um, and then correspondingly, there were other big companies in the, in the industry who they were on the eminent, they were on the buy side, right? They had people out looking in the marketplace, trying to acquire companies that would be a strategic fit. And it just so happened that those sort of three forces all came together in that 2006 timeframe. And did you create an auction where you said, look, you know, we're going to accept bids on such and such a date and everybody needs to kind of rally around that date? Or was it more fluid than that? Uh, well, it was, well, actually, it was two things. <laughs> One is the year before we sold, we had gone through another sort of M&A process with a different company that were, was interested in acquiring us as well. Um, so that, so essentially the year before that, um, we had gone through a process that did not result in, in a sale of the business. Um, but now, uh, we went through the second process where it wasn't so much like submit your bids on this day. It was more about, um, you know, talking to a handful of companies 
uh, and saying, you know, look, we are interested in, in potentially selling the business. If you're interested, you know, here's a here's an executive summary. If you want to learn more, you know, sign off on some NDAs and we'll share more information with you. Uh, so we were definitely trying to find multiple buyers to, to buy the business. Um, but it, we didn't sort of set it up that it all had to come down on one day kind of mentality. It was sort of letting each potential company that might be interested in us go through their own process in their own time frame with us trying to shape that time frame as much as possible to sort of happen nearly at the same time, but not necessarily like, okay, all bids have to come due on such and such day. Got it. Talk to us about the 2005 transaction that didn't work out. Uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was a company that was, uh, this was a competitive company to us, uh, which made it sort of interesting. Um, and the fact that, you know, you can, I, I learned a lot about selling to companies that are competitive or selling to companies that are complementary. Uh, this was a company that had a competing product, but they still felt perhaps that our product and strategy was better than what they had internally. Uh, so that made the whole process a little bit more, uh, difficult. Um, because at the end of the day, it was sort of like if there was a successful deal, then great. It was a successful deal. If it's, there's not a successful deal, then you're concerned about, uh, how much does that competitive company learn about you during the due diligence process? Um, and you know, that was a bit of a learning experience for us as entrepreneurs. Uh, I think that perhaps we went a little bit too long with this company before breaking it off. Uh, and they ended up learning probably a little bit more than we needed them to uh, in that sort of M&A deal that didn't work out. I mean, for those listeners who get approached by a competitor, what advice would you have if they are approached by a competitor who wants to buy them? Yeah, I, I you know, try to definitely ascertain up front how, how serious they are, right? You know, How you know, do that? Um, well, look at their track record and history. Like, have they made acquisitions in the past of competing products or competing companies, or is this their first, um, you know, do they have a formalized team? You know, is this just the business unit person who's telling you they want to buy you or do they actually have like an M and a group that actually does this full time for the company? Um, you know, that, I think that's part of part one. And then part two would be, um, whatever you can do to shorten the due diligence period and perhaps even structure the due diligence period in sort of what I call two phases, meaning, uh, you know, an acquirer has got to know enough to put together a term sheet that says, Hey, we're going to acquire you for X under these terms and conditions. And then you're going to negotiate that term sheet. But then after that term sheet gets negotiated, then the acquirer has to go through due diligence. And this gets into, what level of due diligence are you going to allow them to do? And you want to be able to kind of minimize that on the short end. Um, if it's a, if it's a competing company, uh, where you might structure it that says, okay, I'm willing to share whatever our sales forecast and our, um, sales executives and our pipeline and our customer base and our financials. Uh, and, but I'm not willing to share, you interviewing our R&D team and getting into the nuts and bolts over how we actually build our product. I'm going to save that for sort of phase two of the due diligence process. And what would the phase two look like uh, if phase one is how you described? I mean, would there be a breakup fee, for example, if they didn't go through with the deal at the phase two stage? 
Yeah, that's probably, I mean, that's one thing, if our memory serves me correctly, we did not have in that, in, in our deal, we did not have any breakup fee negotiated up front, but that's something that I've learned, you know, in the past from others that might have been a good uh, sort of provision to throw in there. Built to sell uh, radio listeners, breakup fee basically essentially says that uh, the buyer will pay some sort of damages, if you will, if they do not proceed to consummate a deal. And it's very rare to get a breakup fee for very small businesses. But John, your business was, uh, you know, a significant size, a couple hundred employees, uh, you know, at that stage, especially in dealing with a competitor, it's a little bit more uh, negotiable that you could have some form of, of breakup fee associated with it. Yeah, we didn't. And that was, you know, lesson learned. Uh, yeah. And then my advice is, you know, that phase two is you probably also want to start getting uh, initial drafts of the actual agreement in place because the term sheet's only going to go so deep in terms of the terms and conditions of the deal. Uh, your legal teams, both sides are going to be drafting the actual, you know, purchase agreement. And you want to flush out some of those nitty gritty details to see how the acquirer is going to, what, what position are they going to take on those? Uh, and if you see those early drafts, then you can sort of get to a point where you either realize that there's, you know, a big disagreement over, you know, some, some detail, or therefore you don't want to get into phase two of due diligence, or you're pretty solid on those things. And then you are willing to go to that phase two. It's funny to think about like a letter of intent to buy your business might be two pages long a share purchase agreement might be 40 pages long. That gives you just there's <laughs> a just difference in scope and scale and detail. And so, you know, that's where a lot of deals break down is not at the letter of intent stage. It's, it's at the share purchase stage. So that's yep. interesting. So you've, you've shared a tremendous amount of, uh, of great nuggets there in terms of uh, how to deal with a competitive offer. And I, I know that's something a lot of our listeners worry about, right? Because for the obvious reasons, right? Competitors are oftentimes your most natural buyer. At the same time, they're also the highest risk buyer. So that's helpful. Yep. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah, for us, Trimble came a year later, uh, you know, and they were definitely a complementary buyer, meaning, uh, you know, we were a construction project management software company. Trimble's core business at the time was they had a huge construction division, but it was hardware hardware and communications related, meaning they uh, put GPS software on Caterpillar equipment worldwide and had lots of survey scanning sort of hardware uh, to help out in the construction industry. And I think they, at the corporate level, decided that they needed to move into more of a total solution type company. And they basically made a strategic direction that said, we need to acquire more software companies. Um, so they were definitely more you know, complementary to us so the due diligence process, you know, and the fact that we had gone through it once before, the second time was much easier than the first time. How did you narrow it down to Trimble? Because it sounds like you had two or three companies that, that were interested. Yeah, I mean, it was just, uh, it, was the, it was the one that made the most sense, right? Both from a, you know, valuation perspective, as well as a synergistic perspective. You know, I think uh, what uh, what what we wanted to do is is at least my my view on the founder's perspective was we wanted to sell to a company that was actually gonna you know keep all of our staff you know it wasn't just you know the two founders who was the reason why this company existed we hired a lot of smart people smarter than we were that actually helped grow it to where we were today uh, you know and oftentimes we learned 
from others is that oftentimes when a competing company acquires you, they end up, there's, there's some cost savings that are derived out of that sale, which means they end up, you know, letting go a a decent chunk of your existing staff, uh, when the deal closes. Uh, whereas with Trimble, it was a complimentary, you know, acquisition. They wanted to keep everybody, you know, they were like, you know, software, you know, software and construction, we want all of you guys and we want to retain everybody. And we want you to just sort of use the, the corporate public Trimble global umbrella to help you grow, not, oh, well, we've got this other division that does exactly kind of what you do. So maybe you don't need as many developers or you don't need as many salespeople. How did, you, how did you share the news about the potential being acquired uh, along with the actual uh, acquisition with employees? How'd you approach those? I mean, because because I mean, I think when I talk to people doing this show, I hear two very different points of view. One, I keep I kept them in the loop the whole time, and they knew everything. Others, like it was the biggest secret. I wouldn't reveal anything until the share purchase agreement was signed. The check was in the mail. I mean, check was wired. I should say. Yeah. Yeah. So, lesson learned. Yes, because of the first acquisition the year before, we had tried to keep it quiet, but the due diligence period was so long that essentially employees started to find out about it, right? So our management intention was to try to keep it quiet because we wanted to sort of see whether there was going to be a deal there or not. But because it had gone on for too long, people started finding out about it. Uh, and then essentially you've, the problem there was you've got sort of the, the rumor mill running rampant within your employee base. And, you know, because of the lack of information, it was sort of everybody's making up their own stories. Other people are like, yeah, this is going to be awesome. Other people are like, oh, this is going to suck uh, and are sort of fearful. And all of those things essentially as a business creates a problem because people stop doing their job. Like, I got to go sell more stuff. I need to go deliver more product. And they're too worried about, you know, is the company going to sell or not? What proportion of your employees had stock options? All. And so, you know, when the business was acquired by Trimble, I'm trying to get a sense of what kind of economic event was it for uh, your, your employees? I mean, were they going, was it enough to buy a new car, a new house? Uh, like, were they financially independent forever? Like, just give us a sense of how meaningful it was for them. Yeah. I mean, I'd say it was, you know, as with the company, you got sort of the top, top middle and sort of lower end of sort of your staff levels. Right. And so, yeah, I'd say that the top end probably could be buying themselves a new vacation house. Um, you know, the, the mid tier could be buying themselves a new car, you know, and the, and the, or, you know, lower level staff was sort of, you know, a nice vacation kind of stuff. Great. And so how did they, I mean, how did you manage, uh, the, this idea that they were making money from the transaction, but clearly you and David also were making more money. Was there a, uh, was there any animosity that got created or were, were they like, way to, way to go guys. This is great. I mean, was there, how did that play out? Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't think there was much animosity. Cause I think, you know, long before that we had a very open book policy with all of our employees, meaning uh, we would, you know, even, even before raising money from the venture firms, but definitely even after we'd have quarterly meetings with all of our employees and we'd say, okay, this is what we did revenue wise. This is what we did profit wise. This is where we're reinvesting. Uh, because everybody had stock options, you know, we, you know, when we raised the corporate funding, we were like, okay, your options are, you know, whatever they were worth at the time, they're worth more now. Right. And so people were like mentally calculating what this thing could be worth. 
And they, they knew what the business objectives were over kind of continuing to grow the company, right? And so because we had this open book policy all along, everybody was sort of already in the know of what an acquisition could mean to them personally, as well as what it could mean to management. Um, because they knew we were, you know, getting outside investors and those investors wanted to return on their real dollars that they put into the business. Plus the founders who had the sweat equity, plus all the employees, you know, who probably took uh, um, salaries that were perhaps slightly less than market rate in exchange for, you know, some additional options and, and the ability to get a pop uh, if the business was to sell. So everybody was pretty aligned. So what did the company actually sell for? The company sold, we can't reveal the public number, but it was a mid eight figure deal. And how did the, the VC and the corporate VC uh, end up feeling about their investment? Uh, I think that they felt, you know, it wasn't, a, it wasn't what I call, a, 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 you know, a home run for them. It was more of sort of a single for them. And, but, but candidly, what was probably more of interest to them was uh, trying to get liquidity. Meaning, what what I learned as a young entrepreneur is, you know, when a VC puts an investment in you, they're actually investing other people's money, and that fund has a lifetime. So usually a ten year fund. The first five years, the VCs putting money into companies, and then the last five years, they're basically trying to get a return on those. So. Uh, it just so happened that, you know, the fund that we were in was not a very high performing fund, even for the VC. So their, their view was like, you know, we're, we're interested in closing off the Meridian investment so that we can close off all the other investments in this fund and sort of put that to bed. Uh, it was the same with our corporate venture for, uh, corporate company, right? They were like, okay, they realized that even though we're, I'm a corporate venture investor, uh, that doesn't mean that they can dictate specific product strategy, meaning we can't build a product just for one company. We have to build a market-based product that we can sell to multiple companies. So I think they had never been in this situation before where they were both investor and customer, and they learned some things that were perhaps different than what their initial expectations were. They were probably in that same boat of basically looking to gain some liquidity and not be in that position anymore. It's funny, you know, my original impression of a venture capitalist was this sort of esoteric person who probably made a lot of money in a company and sort of dabbled in businesses and you know, sprinkled little fairy dust around. And, you know, if one in 10 investments make sense, well, that's fine. They're, you know, uber wealthy. And what I came to know is, as it sounds like you, you know very well, is that they tend to be very professional people managing other people's money. So people have invested in a fund and they're very serious about getting a return on that money for their investors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't understand it much at the time, but I certainly learned during that process. Yeah, they, you know, some, they're either a hundred million dollar fund or a billion dollar fund and they're investing depending on the size of their check, you know, 15, 20, 30, 50 companies. And they're basically saying, hey, our fund is 10 years because they, they're under pressure to, to provide a liquidity back to what they refer to as their limited partners. Because that, you know, a hundred million dollar fund didn't come from the VCs themselves. It probably came from other limited partners uh, uh, that are, you know, even bigger players that are putting money into this asset category. Yeah. Going back to the 2005 deal with a competitor that did not consummate, what was the downside of sharing so much through due diligence? I mean, did, did they create a new product competing with you? I mean, 
was there some sort of downside to to it other than the risk that you were maybe sharing too much uh i the, the downside was probably twofold but you know, one may be more so than the other the downside was just sort of the uh the fallout from all the employees who sort of got wind that there may be an acquisition and sort of the emotional reactions over the ones that wanted it to happen and then it didn't and then the ones that didn't want it to happen and it didn't uh, you know, so it was sort of like having to rebuild sort of the, the confidence factor of the employee base. Uh, okay, this was okay. I mean, it's normal course of business, right? Uh, we thought that there was a deal there and there ended up not being a deal. We move on. We still are a great company. We've got a lot of market opportunity to continue to grow. So I think management had to take some time to kind of uh, rebuild the spirits a little bit of, of, the, of, the, of the employee base uh, because it didn't happen. I'd say the other thing, which wasn't that big of a deal, the other company ended up acquiring an, yet another competitor of ours, right? So, you know, there was probably, you know, four or five companies of Meridian size in the marketplace. And this one company was a much bigger public company. Uh, they ended up buying another competitor of ours, which sort of, you know, in the marketplace, um, you know, made them a more serious competitor in the long run because they acquired somebody who was directly competitive to us in terms of size. Got it. Got it. So to go back to Trimble, I mean, as you look, I mean, it sounds like a great mid eight figure deal. Um, uh, give us a sense, by the way, of, of what multiple of EBITDA they would have been paying. If you have any sense of you know, broad strokes, was it a, can you, can you recall? Yeah, I want to say it was probably in the five to eight range. Uh, no, sorry. That was, uh, yeah, it was probably about eight to 10 of EBITDA in terms of what they ended up paying for it. Um, which was the, the valuation. And uh, yeah, it was a great deal for all involved. You know, I think our, um, the, probably the best thing was, you know, the company Trimble decided to continuing to operate us as a wholly owned subsidiary. Um, so we continue to maintain the Meridian brand. Uh, they wanted me to keep running it. Um, you know, they wanted us to continue to grow the business. Um, I think probably the even other benefit long-term for all the employees is, you know, Trimble was a global company with probably, I don't even know, close to 3,000 employees at the time. Um, so there was a lot of career opportunity for, you know, people who were with Meridian to potentially go work for other business units within the greater Trimble uh, and, you know, essentially have more career opportunities for growth was probably even, uh, even the best thing. Take us inside the boardroom uh, so you've got you know, representative from Hoktif, uh, from your venture capital firm, it's you, David, and you've got this opera for eight to 10 times EBITDA. Uh, what's the conversation like? Is everybody agree? This is a good deal. Let's take it. Or is one, you know, some folks dissenting, looking to get more. Uh, yeah, that we were not necessarily in, in strong alignment initially. Um, you know, I think it was our investors, I think wanted out. Um, we actually had, uh, a, we had hired a CEO actually, um, at, after the, uh, venture investors. So he was the fifth board member and he was sort of the middleman. Uh, and then even David and I, as co-founders, David had left the company, uh, a few years before that. And I think he was also looking for the liquidity event. I was probably the one who was, Looking for the liquidity event, but thinking that uh, that maybe there was a greater you know value to be placed on where we were in terms of you know value to the company and value to the employees. Hmm. Um, 
So I guess maybe I was the, the I wouldn't say holdout, but I was the one definitely on the on the end of the spectrum saying maybe we should negotiate for a higher number or a better deal or wait. Uh, and others were perhaps more interested in, in, in getting that liquidity event. And so what changed your mind? Uh, what changed my mind was I, I felt like it was the best deal, you know, for all involved. Uh, it goes back to sort of, you know, for me, the liquidity event wasn't the end of the journey. Um, which was oftentimes, especially for our investors, it was the end of their investment in in Meridian. For me, it was I still had passion for what we were doing in the marketplace with building products and growing, you know, a, a global customer base, uh, developing new products. And the Trimble uh, acquisition continued to give us that opportunity to continue with the mission. Um, so for me, the liquidity was an event along the journey and the journey still hadn't ended, uh, which is why I ended up staying for four years after the acquisition, because I wanted to be, you know, I was still passionate about the industry that we're serving, the customers that we're serving, the products that we're trying to build. Uh, you know, that's one of the reasons why I felt like it was the best deal for all involved at the time. And was there, was there an earn out component? Is that part of the reason you stayed on for that long length of time? No, candidly, uh, you know, uh, some of our advisors were sort of warning us that saying, you know, oftentimes uh, acquirers will put out an earnout provision. Uh, you know, I, candidly, I don't know what, you know, Trimble's rhyme or reason was, but there was none with us. Um, and so there was no earnout. I, I literally stayed because I wanted to. I find that fascinating. I, and, I, and again, I, maybe that's, uh, maybe that's an insight more into <laughs> more insight into my personality than yours but i think i think that's not a decision a lot of uh, people would have made i think you know you 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 obviously get paid a lot of money for creating something you you were there from the beginning you bootstrapped it and i and i hear you when you when you talk about the mission wasn't finished and you had more work to do and there were more products to i i get all that i think it takes a very very principled person to to get a huge check and not have that affect their day-to-day -day life yeah, I mean, uh, I you know maybe it's just uh, of who I am. I suppose you know <laughs> it's sort of like uh, um, you know um, I'm a first generation uh, American you know, that, that has immigrant you know parents that you know came to this country and I was fortunate to get an education and work hard and and do well and you know create value and that was to me the mission behind what we were trying to do. Um, so perhaps you know. My 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 background, my upbringing, the school I went to, the everything that sort of shaped my opinions got me to that point where, yeah, the, the don't get me wrong, the liquidity event for me personally was great, right? And I wouldn't be where I am, you know, on a financial perspective if it wasn't for Dave and I coming together and and starting that business. But yeah, it wasn't uh, the, it wasn't the liquidity event was here and and it's time to go do something else. No, I wanted to keep. Uh, growing that and, uh, you know, make sure that the acquiring company is going to get the value that they just paid for it as well. Right. So, you know, uh, one of the more gratifying things that uh, I heard from the CEO after the acquisition is, is like three or four years later, he said we were one of the best performing acquisitions that they had done. Uh, and they were acquiring like, you know, 10, 12 companies a year. Um, and so getting that vote of confidence, you know, from a public CEO was also another great career experience of, 
learning what it's like to essentially run a business as a public company, but obviously not being the public company CEO, uh, but being close enough to sort of understand what it's like and how different it is versus when you're privately held. And and how was that four-year period that you spent as an employee of Trimble? Uh, it sounds like they must have done some good things to keep you. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think they they wanted us to keep doing what we were doing. They wanted us to explore other business units that we could, you know, gain uh, synergies on. Um, you know, they had a global footprint that we could leverage a lot of their global offices in the Mideast and uh, in the Middle East. Um, you know, they they gave us, you know, we we even had to get more rigor as it relates to remember how I talked about those quarterly board meetings right well now it's now it's what are you contributing to the profit and and earnings on the on the quarterly you know calls that the ceo is having and how do you roll up into you know all the different business units um so i think that that was just another great experience uh that they gave us and gave all of our staff uh, you know, and I, I enjoyed that. I learned, you know, a tremendous amount during those four years after the acquisition. So you, you mentioned that you wouldn't be where you are financially had it not been for the acquisition. Did you allow yourself any indulgence, any trophy of the, uh, <laughs> of the journey? Did you buy anything? <laughs> the, 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 tr the, probably the biggest trophy that I allowed myself was, uh, my wife and I took 30 days off and did an around the world trip. Um, and went to 10 different countries on a chartered Boeing 757 that was outfitted for just 80 people. Um, and we went to 10 fantastic countries that all had like world UNESCO heritage sites. And it was just a fantastic trip. What did that cost? Uh, it was a six figure per person deal. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Good yeah. for you. I like hearing a little trophy. Uh, <laughs> It was a little trophy. It was uh, it was just an amazing trip. I mean, it it just got you up close and personal. I mean, we went to Machu Picchu in Peru. We went to Angkor Wat in Cambodia. We went to Taj Mahal in India. We went on a safari in Tanzania. We went uh, went to Egypt to see the pyramids. Uh, so it's just a lot of uh, a good human history tour, uh, and it was just fantastic. John, where do people reach you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, uh, at J Bedrozic, J B O D R O Z I C. You can even find me on email. Same thing. J Bedrozic at Homezada, H O M E Z A D A, which happens to be my new startup. And tell us briefly, what does Homezada do? Sure. It is a digital home management platform where we target, uh, an online app, uh, for homeowners to manage the data about their house. Uh, to help them save money, improve value, and be better organized around what, for many, is their largest financial asset. Neat, neat, neat. Well, that sounds uh, cool. I'm going to have to check that out. So what's the uh, URL we can go to for that one? Uh, it's homezada.com, H-O-M-E-Z-A-D-A.com. John Bedrozic, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Built to Sell Radio with John Warlow. For complete show notes with links to additional resources, visit builttosell.com slash blog. John is the founder of the Value Builder System. To find out how to improve the value of your business by 71%, visit valuebuildersystem.com. 
John is also the author of Built to Sell, creating a business that can thrive without you, and the automatic customer, creating a subscription business in any industry. Connect with John at facebook.com slash built to sell or on Twitter at John Warlow, W-A-R-R-I-L-L-O-W.